Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Network 5 Emergency Medicine Journal Club. And do we have an interesting episode for you today. This month, we're perusing neurology. Joining us, we have an exciting team of special guests. Thank you for your invitation. My name is Hugo Morales, consultant neurologist. And I'm Jess Stabler. It's nice to be back. I'm currently working as the Epilepsy Fellow here at Westmead. And I'm Sai Nagaratnam, one of the Neurology Advanced Trainees. This is Shreyas, and I'm back for another month. I'm Riz, I'm one of the ED registrars. Uh, I'm James, and I'm one of the emergency physicians I work at Nepean Hospital. Thanks for having me back. Fantastic. And I'm Kit. I'll be hosting today. To kick off, we've got Sai presenting Capturing Vertigo in the Emergency Room, Three Tools to Double the Rate of Diagnosis, a paper by Ben Nam et al. Yeah, so just to introduce the paper, it was a paper actually out of RPA, so local one, through the Dizzy Clinic um, and the group there. So it was a prospective observational study of about 500 people who came through the emergency department at RPA over a period of four years. They divided them essentially into two groups, one being the intervention group where they were assessed by a neurotologist using three tools being a structured history, video oculography, as well as a video head impulse test and comparing those patients to those managed in the usual fashion. And these were all patients who presented to the emergency department with acute vertigo. So in terms of the background of this paper, they pointed out that, you know, dizziness is a fairly common presentation to ED, as you, know, you guys would know. So there was a paper that sort of said 4% of patients presenting to ED present with dizziness, and about 3% of these can have a posterior circulation stroke. So I think really the premise of this in a lot of ways is to you know, nail down the diagnosis as quickly as possible. And the second thing, I guess, is to, you know, make sure we're ruling out posterior circulation strokes or ruling them in as best we can. As obviously, I think of all the acute vestibular syndromes, that's really the most dangerous one. And I think most easily missed in some ways. They categorize these sort of the diagnosis into an acute vestibular syndrome, which was further subdivided, and then into episodic spontaneous vertigo and chronic vertigo. So those were the three main categories that they tried to divide these patients into as a final diagnosis within the study. In terms of the tools that they used, they used a structured history, which I won't go into because it was sort of in one of the supplementary appendices, you know, reasonably long. But just to briefly touch on a few salient points, which I think, you know, we can use, you know, when taking a history in ED regardless. So they documented whether it was the first episode of vertigo ever um, and how long the vertigo lasted for and whether it was spontaneous or brought on by positional change. Further questions were the presence of tinnitus, fullness or hearing loss, as well as um, migranous symptoms such as headache, visual auras and photophobia. And further questions were related to vascular risk factors such as atrial fibrillation, hypertension, diabetes and smoking, which as we know are fairly prevalent in our population at Westmead. And in terms of the two further clinical tests, they used video oculography, which is something that we don't have here, obviously. Essentially, is sort of special lenses um, with videos attached to it so they can assess the eye movements in real time. And this was, you know, plugged into a software to, you know, give quite nice graphs as they outlined in the paper. 
And the third thing was video head impulse tests. As we know, most of us do the head impulse test unless it's blatantly obvious. You know, I genuinely don't think we do it that well. So this is using video. So again, you know, trying to really nail down, you know, any abnormal eye movements that are elicited with the head impulse test, which I think, you know, greatly increases the specificity of the findings there. And sort of a further tool that they used, not in the emergency department, but sort of early on in the follow-up period was audiogram for people who had any symptoms of hearing change. So in terms of the various groups that they divided these patients into, the first was the acute vestibular syndrome. So these were patients who, again, presented with, you know, usually the first episode of vertigo, fairly acute onset. The thing that differentiated that from episodic vertiginous syndrome was in that it was fairly constant and, you know, lasted for at least hours, if not, you know, a a few days. So in the intervention group, there was 148 patients that were diagnosed with vestibular neuronitis within that group and 46 with a stroke in the posterior circulation. And in those who were diagnosed with vestibular neuronitis, all of them met the HINTS criteria, which, you know, as we know, helps to delineate between a central and peripheral cause of vertigo. So these patients had a positive head impulse test, horizontal nystagmus that obeyed Alexander's law, as well as an absent skew. Patients with posterior circulation strokes, um, which were subsequently found on MRI, usually had some other extra findings, whether that was, you know, the presence of ataxia in the limbs or some other abnormal eye movement or as they call it in this paper, being neurotologists, uh, central eye movements. Hints uh, testing is actually quite good in delineating posterior circulation strokes from vestibular neuronitis um, with about a 92% specificity. So it is quite good when used appropriately. And in terms of a structured history, again, in delineating these two, which I think is fairly important. So in their final analyses, the odds of having a stroke were higher in those with greater than one vascular risk factor with an odds ratio of six, which I thought was fairly good, or additional neurological symptoms, as we talked about, sort of ataxia or limb weakness being the main ones with an odds ratio of 41.7. So again, I think really nailing down um, some of the examination findings and, you know, the background history can be really helpful in clinically trying to delineate the two. Using the video head impulse test really helped in uh, nailing down positivity of these findings in those patients. And again, they, they found that just using the video head impulse test, using certain criteria, again, sort of gave about a 92% specificity in ruling out a posterior circulation stroke and ruling in vestibular neuronitis, which I think um, was really helpful. They also pointed out very briefly that a vestibular migraine, first presentation of this, can also present similar to an acute vestibular syndrome. But most of these patients actually had sort of a negative hints, you know, in that it pointed to a more central cause. Um, so again, I think that's something to keep in mind. And I think sort of more, more for us is um, on the neurology side of things in terms of when, when they're followed up to sort of ask them, you know, has there been further episodes, which can, you know, potentially point to a vestibular migraine rather than sort of a single episode of a vestibular neuronitis. Briefly touching on the next group of patients, those being episodic vertigo, you know, the main ones that we see in this is BPV, benign positional vertigo. As we know, posterior canal BPV forms the majority of these patients. And again, they use the video oculography. So you're looking at the eye movements during a hallpike maneuver to try and delineate between this and sort of other 
central causes. And there's a nice graph in the paper, which we obviously can't see on the podcast. It does show sort of quite large amplitude saccadic movements on the video oculography that dampen down within the first sort of 15 seconds compared to sort of other causes where it sort of lags on, you know, for, you know, even up to a minute. And I think that's really helpful in delineating, you know, obviously BPV where usually the vertiginous symptoms and nystagmus only last for a few seconds. Um, so I think that demonstrated that quite well. And interestingly enough, using the structured history side of things, they didn't find that any particular questions on the structured history that they used delineated between BPV and non-BPV. They compared the intervention groups, sort of, you know, those who had received these three tools to the control group and those who, you know, just received the usual treatment, you know, the usual pathways, you know, the diagnosis that they received was quite varied. So a lot of people, about 40% got diagnosed with BPV, but interestingly, only 40% of those patients ended up having a corroborative history or a positive Hallpike test. And only 50% of those who were diagnosed with vestibular neuronitis had an abnormal head impulse test documented, which is fairly interesting. You know, a lot of people are labeled these things, you know, with not necessarily having had, you know, the relevant exam findings documented. What they did as well, they took the control group and put the documented notes into a structured history and examination, and they gave it to some of these neurotologists to try and sort of diagnose in retrospect. They could only really give a good diagnosis in 40% of those people. Whereas those in the intervention group for which they did the same thing, about 86% of those sort of received a diagnosis retrospectively. So they actually essentially doubled the rate of diagnosis by using sort of these three tools, which I thought was, you know, really good. Because I think dizziness talking to a lot of JMOs, you know, ED or otherwise, it's, you know, one of those very nebulous things. JMOs and consultants and registrars. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Overall, I think it was quite a nice paper. There are certain things that, you know, we obviously can't, well, we don't have access to at Westmead, you know, being the video head impulse and the, you know, oculography. But I think the take home in some ways using the history, and I think that's certainly something that we can use. And, you know, down the track, sure, we can get access at some point to things like a video head impulse testing. We've got the, you know, rational cameras that, you know, five years ago were just coming in and now they're used quite widely. It is something that down the track I think can be used to help our patients. And I think, you know, in Western Sydney, people do have a lot of vascular risk factors. So I think really trying to nail down whether this could be a posterior circulation stroke or a peripheral vestibular cause can be really helpful. Thanks. So I really appreciate that. I get very nervous about hints. I'm well aware that there's a lot of evidence out there to suggest that as kind of ED people, we're pretty pathetic at performing hints successfully. Do you think these resources maybe provide us an objective measure for performing hints? Yeah, definitely. So that's what I touched on earlier. I think even when we do a head impulse test in particular, sometimes it can be quite subtle. And sometimes even I would, you know, maybe say something's positive if it fits with the rest of the findings. Whereas I, you know, I would not really lay much on it if it wasn't. Mm. Um, so I think definitely having objective evidence of that with the video and sort of plug into a software that's, you know, linked to the evidence-based criteria for a positive head impulse can be really helpful. Has anyone used this equipment here? I haven't got any familiarity with video oculography. Is it easy to use? Is it something that is relatively cheap, so to speak, and accessible? Is it something that we could get here? 
I think it's manufactured here in Australia. It's easy to use. However, for going to, to acquiring this equipment, I strongly suggest to just use your mobile phone camera. <laughs> Probably you have used it before. Just because one of the errors in interpreting hits is when you do the head thrust, you may miss that corrective saccade. And with the video camera, you can just slow it down and just get there. Let's say, oh, look, it's actually a corrective saccade. With its asymmetry is when the, that everything comes together. And all of the things that you need to be aware of you know, doing the hints is you're looking for a skewed deviation. When you're looking for a skewed deviation, you need to look at inpatient uh, sitting and also laying down because skew deviation changes with position. That's the other thing. If you examine just only laying down, you may miss it. And obviously, the other things that you need to be aware of is upbeat nystagmus, downbeat nystagmus, rotational nystagmus. That's central. Once you see it, you say, oh, look, this acute vestibular syndrome has central findings. So I think the whole combination of clinical signs and findings, if you had dysartria, a slur speech when a patient with acute vestibular syndrome, you need to do it at a brain MRI or CT scan. This technology is something that I think at this point in time does require specialist experience in. It's not something that is kind of readily available and completely intuitive to use. However, I think that that's something that will change in time as technology, mobile phones, AI type stuff develops. I think there will be new applications of this type of software that would then be able to be disseminated across, you know, emergency departments, GPs, etc. But we're not quite there yet. I think that that's really relevant what both of you have said. I mean, I can certainly attest to size point in regards to the retinal camera. Since I started using that combination of ultrasound, I have not touched an ophthalmoscope once for any Blasphemy. eye slash. <laughs> <laughs> it's the truth, unfortunately, because um, if the question is query papilledema or query posterior eye pathology, the combination of ultrasound and retinal photography, certainly for my personal yield is far, far superior. It's quantitative versus qualitative, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's, that's right. It's just how much can I see? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the, the issue is I've certainly seen the retinal photography start to permeate out and we see this trend of it starts in the big centers and then gradually sort of migrates out into the smaller centers. But I've, I've certainly still worked in smaller departments where retinal photography is just not available. Presuming that similarly, you know, this equipment follows the same trend, I think it'll probably be, you know, several years before a smaller center in a regional area or an urban district area has access to this stuff. I think one of the things that we struggle with in, in emergency is having a structured approach to vertigo. It took me a really long time to have any sort of basic initial pathway to follow, particularly in terms of examination. I was just wondering if you could talk us through like a basic appropriate exam approach into assessing vertigo and, you know, potentially targeted towards some of our more junior listeners as well, and, and then we'll all secretly benefit. So I always ask patients if this episode of vertigo has been screened before and how frequent, because that's a clue as well to see, oh, this patient actually had similar episodes in the past. And the differential diagnosis of a patient having repetitive attacks could be EPV, it could be Meniere's, and then the time course of the symptoms is also helpful to differentiate between them. The auditory symptoms as well, this is ear fullness, 
all these symptoms that you asked are just building up to to terrorize these patients. The other thing is if there are clear signs of cerebral ataxia, limitaxia, dysarthria, weakness, that implies that a central lesion. But sporadically, you will find some patients that have everything normal, acute vestibular syndrome, and they have a cerebellar stroke. Even the hints is normal, okay? So it doesn't show any uh, abnormality. Uh, whereas other patients may have abnormal hints suggesting a peripheral abnormality. So you need to be very astute in the way you ask these questions to patients. So how the standing up, laying down in bed, turning off, they have increscendo symptoms as well. Uh, cardiovascular risk factors are also important to consider. I base many of my diagnosis on clinical findings. Probably many of you have seen patients that everything is normal and the symptoms are very strong. They don't fit into BPPV, Meniere's, but this patient may have psychogenic illnesses, okay? So there's a large study suggesting that the psychogenic or functional vestibular syndrome is the third or the fourth cause of acute vestibular syndrome in the emergency department. So you need to consider that, okay? Many of these patients eventually ended up having brain MRI just excluded because uh, there's rarities of cerebral strokes causing the syndrome. But if you ask about migraine, you will find a subset of patients, a third, 20% of patients that they look, have had my migraine in the past. I have a classical migraine with a visual aura, but at the moment I'm not having migraine but they have in the vestibular syndrome. And after doing this charge uh, to home, they develop the migraine or the headache. So it's a diagnosis to consider. The other differential diagnosis, uh, rare, but uh, that's the value of having a brain MRI as an outpatient when the unclassified patient, and there's something called vestibular paroxysmia, is uh, akin to a trigeminal neuralgia with this microvascular compression of the nerve. And they respond very well to carbamazepine. So you have to have in mind at least these five differential diagnoses and to just allocate the signs to every category and then wait to say, oh, look, probably the likelihood of having vestibular migraine is this, or the most common BPPV is this. Remember, BPPV is more common on the right. And something that we forget is 50% of the patients with BPPV, they have horizontal canal. And we don't do the head roll. Head roll, you need to do it lying down. The patient just acutely turn to one side and then go back to the center and then to the other side. And you look where whereabouts is beating the nystagmus the most. Something you need to look for intentionally. I guess I might tack on to those points. I think in my experience, the thing that all of a sudden made vertigo make more sense to me was when I got my head around having these three robust categories. And I think that that is the thing that is done poorly across the board. We, we just have a vertigo mush <laughs> in our brains. And if you can separate it out into these three classes, I think that that's really helpful. So the acute vestibular syndrome versus the episodic spontaneous vertigo versus the episodic positional vertigo. That's the three classifications that they used within this study. And so the acute 
vestibular syndrome is sudden onset vertiginous symptoms, often accompanied by nausea, diaphoresis, etc. So the two main differentials within the acute vestibular syndrome is this stroke versus is this vestibular neuronitis. Obviously, one serious, one a lot more benign. So an important distinction to make. That's where the additional history becomes very important and the examination, just like anything else in medicine. Um, So that's where we're looking for the vascular risk factors and also looking for the report of additional neurological symptoms and the examination findings to support that. Is there anything else that we can find that raises red flags that suggests that this is more than just a vestibular neuronitis? That's also where the HINTS exam can be useful in helping us split those two. Is this a peripheral cause of vertigo, i.e. vestibular neuronitis, or is this a central cause, i.e. a stroke? So that's the acute vestibular syndrome category. The next category is the episodic spontaneous vertigo. So this group may actually sometimes present like acute vestibular syndrome, but the key is that it's episodic. And so the most common cohort within that group is migraine. The other much, much less common cohort is many years in there. And then the third group is the episodic positional vertigo. That is far and away most commonly BPPV. So that's going to be the most common cause of vertigo presenting to the emergency department. Those are the couple of key points. So first episode, acute, severe vertigo. You want to know, are there any associated neurological symptoms and are there vascular risk factors? For people who are having episodes, it's much less likely that this is going to be because of a stroke. And we need to be thinking about the recurrent causes of vertigo. And the two most common of those are BPPV and migraine. And then the BPPV, the money is really in the positional nature of it. Although I think just, again, something that I have found Uh, vertigo is a very distressing symptom for an individual when they're experiencing it, especially if they're getting a lot of associated nausea. Sometimes people with positional vertigo will report that as continuous. And that's because any subtle movement of the head can actually trigger off this terrible, terrible vertiginous symptom. And then they're shifting around trying to get comfortable and it feels like it is continuous to them. So you really want to pin them down and say, if you stay perfectly still, do your symptoms settle? And I think that that is a helpful question in my clinical arsenal, I suppose, um, that I think can be um, helpful. Could it not be episodic and be a TIA? It is unusual for TIAs to be completely stereotyped. I guess the other differential that is within this and that can muddy the waters slightly is a vertebrobasilar insufficiency. And so sometimes if people have a tight stenosis within the posterior circulation, they may get some kind of perfusion-related symptoms if they drop their blood pressure, etc. And so that can cause uh, recurrent episodes. And so I suppose that's why it's important to image these patients. With uh, posterior circulation TIAs, particularly with the acute vestibular syndrome, they are atypical as opposed to the anterior circulation TIAs that were uh, transient. This uh, for acute vestibular syndrome can last up to one hour. And nearly half of the posterior circulation strokes may be accompanied by the acute vestibular syndrome. So these patients are, as I mentioned, that they're very high risk of having a stroke where they come to emergency department, everything is normal, examination is normal, a lot of symptoms, and they come back and come back. Those patients, they need to have imaging. 
I think the big thing that's going to change with my approach to vertigo following this discussion is actually just the way that I label vertigo. The word vertigo in and of itself is not really a helpful word, is it? Correct. It's the terminology that then surrounds that and whether it's episodic, whether it's positional, yeah. it seems yeah. to be the differentiating factor. And that then should direct your examination as well, because when mm. we're considering an acute vestibular syndrome, then that's when we're thinking about the HINTS exam and that's when that's applicable. Versus if we're thinking an episodic and positional, then that's where the Dick's Hall Pike is relevant. And so that is uh, having fielded across a number of hospitals now, um, a number of calls about vertigo, that has been my observation is that it's, um, it's in the misapplication of the hints and the Dix Hall Pike because people don't have those three kind of categories in their minds as a framework. So Sai, they, they obviously found, you know, quite a significant increase in diagnoses of vertigo in this paper. One of the big limitations is, is evidently that there were neurotologists mm. looking at these patients and not emergency physicians. And obviously maybe that's the next step to bring this into the the world of emergency medics where we're much less refined at maybe examining some of these uh, subtypes. Uh, was there anything else in this paper that stood out to you as a particular limitation or a direction that you would go in next following this research? Like you said, the, the limitations are really around the experience of the clinicians who examine the patients as well as the hardware and software that was used. But I think one of the things moving forward, as you know, Jess has pointed out really, are I think using the structured history that they used, as well as trying to put patients into one of these three categories. I think that is something that we can use moving forward you know, in, in any hospital. Vertigo, obviously, as we've already alluded, very challenging in the ED. And we often find a number of providers misusing different tools in, in assessing vertigo. I just wondered if you could give us an idea of how you approach vertigo in the ED setting and also what the pitfalls that you've seen, you know, potentially residents fall into or other registrars or consultants fall into. I think vertigo is actually done extremely poorly in emergency. Like, I agree. Most patients who come in vertiginous, like, I was surprised that they even got a, a diagnosis rate of, I think, 17%. I think most people leave with an incorrect diagnosis. And I think if, if you line up everyone in the department on a certain day from residents up to the consultants, I think most will come away with a, with a different diagnosis of what they think is going on. I think it's the lack of approach is a big part of that, but also a lack of ability to interpret signs that they see. I really think this is like a, a great paper to highlight the value of using electronic tools, I think that they're grossly underutilized in medicine at the moment. The fact that I think we still rely on humans to interpret things like ECGs, which are literally squiggly lines, pattern recognition, which computers have been doing in other industries and in other applications for like decades at the moment. I think that the fact that we still sit there and sign off on ECGs is quite bizarre. And I think it's sort of tells to this culture in medicine and this belief amongst doctors that they have superior sort of interpretation skills when it comes to these things. I agree that someone who's highly trained in the field should be able to do these things, but it's impossible, especially when these patients are most likely to present to primary healthcare providers and emergency departments. I think it's impossible to think that they're going to be evaluated appropriately. And I think with that admission, I think the next step is to try and think about what this means in terms of going onto electronic tools. I think the argument is becoming overwhelmingly in their support. I think this highlights that from a clinical point of view, but even from an economical point of view, if you think about a vertiginous patient who presents to the emergency department, the cost of that patient is far beyond what the cost of using these tools, I think, would be. So on that standard person's visit, they'll probably be seen by a JMO of some sort. 
they'll often take up a bed space because they're difficult to walk, they're difficult to move. You can't keep them in non-clinical areas. They'll require to be cannulated. Often they'll get fluids. They'll get a variety of different medications depending on who sees them and what mood they're in on that day. But often, as mentioned, we'll never get a diagnosis. We'll never get any real sort of management plan. And they'll often be back in a few months, a couple of years, with nothing really done in between. That patient's Each time they present, the amount of time they spend in the emergency department as people think about different things, as people order pointless CT scans, I think that's actually a huge economical cost. And not only that, but it's taking away from resources that could be used for other patients for different things. It's delaying delaying the amount of time they spend in ED and is really just not good for their experience. I don't know if anyone else has had vertigo. I had vertigo once. Admittedly, it was probably my own fault. I was swimming in this large, really, really cold um, water hole that fed off a waterfall from like higher up, obviously. And it was probably about a 50 to 100 meter swim out to the waterfall. And then on the swim back, I didn't realize I was going in the water. I thought, oh, I feel kind of weird. And then I reached solid ground. I tried to stand up and I just fell to one side. And I, at the time, I just kept falling and falling and falling. And the people I was with, like they were all doctors and sort of knew what was going on within a few seconds but obviously with the cold water getting in my ear I didn't react very well um it's the only time I've ever had it and it was it was absolutely crippling for that 10 minutes I just could not stand up I could not do anything I started laughing because it was a thing to do it I just end up laying on the grass for about 20 minutes trying not to throw up but it is it's very unpleasant and I think anything we can do for these patients at least to give them a diagnosis and I think we underestimate how much a diagnosis means to people. I think anything we can do for them is helpful. For me, all the arguments are pointing towards use of electronic tools. And I think this is a discovery of a new one. And we can all get great at clinical exam and things, but there's only so much time that we can have. There's only so much motivation that especially emergency physicians have to learn each subspecialty's nuances. And so I think anything you can do to supersede humans is definitely the way to go. That ties into a lot of interesting themes. And if people are interested in the influence of AI in emergency medicine, they can just look to one of our recent episodes in cardiology where we talked about Mm. that specific topic. I guess we're probably not going to have access to, you know, definitive electronic tools for, you know, all of these problems for a reasonable amount of time. I guess in the absence of that, what are your tips for doing this appropriately? In particular, you know, if we've got a junior emergency registrar or an SRMO, someone who you're trying to give an approach to doing this properly, our neurology colleagues here have explained to us about sort of categorizing the vertigo and about considering the differential. What mistakes do you want us to avoid? I think one of the biggest mistakes is not completing the history. These patients come in really uncomfortable. They don't want to speak to you. And sometimes patients who don't want to speak to you, you just sort of stop talking to them. But it is really important to pin them down, to pin them down on whether it is positional, to pin them down on how it's happening, when it's happening. Those are the things that I think people miss often. They say, oh, you know, they're nauseous to talk. Sometimes they're too vertiginous, like to examine properly. And some like often that just takes a bit of time. It's difficult with the way things are because ideally these patients just need a bed for a while. You need to lay them down. You need to keep them still and see what happens. And that's a big part of it. But it is unfortunate the way it is that that's a bit of a luxury in most of the hospitals, especially in Western Sydney. I think that's one of the big things. The other big thing is actually learning what the signs you're looking for look like. I don't think I'm an expert by any means, but I can see really obvious signs if they're there. 
I saw a woman and I had seen her 12 hours after she'd come to hospital. So she was in short stay and she had a positive test of skew. And um, I said, oh, I wasn't, you don't expect it when you see a really obvious one. And so then I called uh, whoever was on call for neurology. It was during the day and they sent down their basic physician trainee who examined the patient said, oh, there's a positive test of skew. And they didn't believe me on the phone. And so they then called their advanced trainee who didn't believe them on the phone. That person came down and saw the patient and said, oh, it's a positive test of skew. Who then spoke to the consultant who came down, saw the positive test of skew. And then I, I overheard the conversation that subsequently happened where they were consenting them to record their positive test of skew because it was so pronounced. And so it is just a testament to the fact that so many of these are either falsely reported, missed or anything. And so it does take a bit of patience and time, but uh, if, if you are so inclined, even just taking a moment before you see the patient to really look up what those signs mean, because it's sometimes hard to remember. And there's no shame in that. There's no shame in looking up things. Um, there is a lot out there. And, but there's also, we live in a generation of an abundance of online resources where you can look something up, you can look up the approach as you're doing it and making sure you're really following that. In terms of one of those resources, certainly the, one of the easiest ones that I've found to use is through the Emergency Care Institute, which has an abundance of really useful clinical guidelines for emergency departments. Their guideline on assessing vertigo is succinct and brilliant. And it's something that I still refer to today before looking at a vertigo patient. Going back to the imaging approach to vertigo, Hugo, I've heard you say that when there are strokes who are presenting with posterior circulation symptoms, they tend to be atypical. And so some of them will have an examination that suggests peripheral or suggests perhaps a different category to you know, the acute vestibular syndrome. With that in mind, which patients should we be actually pursuing imaging for? If someone comes in with vascular risk factors, but they have a classical history and examination that points to, say, BPPV or to vestibular neuritis, should we still pursue stroke imaging? We have the capabilities to explore the mechanisms of a possible stroke doing a CT angiogram. If you have a posterior circulation stroke, you need to look for abnormalities in the vertebral artery and the vascular artery as well. And with the CTA, the specificity and sensibility is high, actually. So that's a good way to exclude these patients between low or low likelihood of having a stroke or high likelihood of having one. And then you can see these patients eventually. If you find any normality there, then you go for a brain MRI, et cetera. But I guess if you take everything into context that risk factors, repeating episodes, and the clinical findings that it suggests a central but peripheral lesion, but symptoms are persistent. And they say, oh, I, can, I cannot allocate this patient into other categories because that a typical presentation is a red flag as well. And it doesn't matter if you don't have experience seeing these patients. What you want to do is to uh, classify patients and look for the probability of this patient having a diagnosis that will give you a whole different treatment versus as an outpatient, okay? So it's uh, the emergency physician, it's, it's his role to stratify patients and say, look, this patient has a high risk of complications. We should treat him. So all the decisions actually are made by you guys. Uh, and we received the information and say, oh, look, I agree with you. I have found ED doctors that call me and give me a, like a very complete history 
and say this patient needs to have an MRI or there needs to be a beta or CTA. If the CTA is normal, just send it to rapid access neurology clinic, et cetera. Yeah, but everything is based on that. So if you guys think uh, this patient is very unusual, you can re-examine the patient. It's not a matter of just once. It's just a matter of repeating examination. And uh, just going back to that comment that you can see one sign and then disappears. So uh, you can see that in actually conditions, central condition and peripheral conditions. It's also the technique how you examine patients. I mentioned early laying down and sitting for skew deviation. So the skew deviation can be reduced with a Wallenberg syndrome uh, over time. And then the stagmus changes as well. So it's something that you need to be aware. If you see it, you say it was there. And well, any neurologist will believe you. I might just also tack onto that. So I think the people that need acute imaging are those who present with an acute vestibular syndrome. Those are the people as opposed to the people who are having recurrent presentations with what sounds more like a, a positional vertigo. Even I suppose practice will vary from clinician to clinician. But if someone has positional vertigo and a positive Dix-Hallpikes test, and then you perform an Epley's manoeuvre on them and things settle down, then I would be happy with that and I would not image that individual. It's the people who are presenting with the uh, acute onset, persistent vertigo, looking terrible, looking nauseated, and then the clincher is obviously if they have any other neurological signs. But even in the absence of that, those are the people that you want to be imaging. And I guess that's the thing that we want to not miss in the emergency department is those who are presenting with a posterior circulation stroke. The other stuff uh, is a lot more benign and can be sorted with time, with outpatient investigation and referral. The one thing we don't want to miss is the posterior circulation strokes. So maybe you could wrap us up with a few take-home points from this paper. My take-homes really are one, to categorise these patients into, you know, the three major categories and then, you know, subdivide further. The other take home is really using the structured history or using a history to really try and nail that down. Thirdly, you know, maybe sometime in the future, some of this technology can be more widespread, but I think at least over the next few years, you know, using this general approach, I think is the main thing I would take from this paper. Fantastic. And as always, the graphs and the paper itself will be available on our show notes online. And that's all for part one. Again, you've been listening to the Network 5 Emergency Medicine Journal Club. And if you'd like to contact us, we are, as always, available on Westmead ED Journal Club at gmail.com. See you for part two. I try to make you stay, but I guess my love wasn't enough. Was it me or was it you love? Because I'm dying to know. Why do you want to was it real or just pretend? Tell me why do you wanna end? Was he really just a friend? No sign of you at all. Just pictures on these walls, reminding me of how you. Was it real or just pretend? 
Tell me why you wanna end Was he really just a friend Cause it's plain in my 